Spirit. We feel your presence in this place right now. God, pour out your Spirit on us uh, in these moments that sit before us. Lord, uh, use my words today that they may not be my own, but speak to the hearts of your people, the people who have gathered here, who have gathered online. Uh, and, and Lord, we ask that you do a work in us. God, uh, I know uh, that you are um, prepared to say something. It is our job to open our hearts and to receive what it is you have for us this morning. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends. Uh, so we're in the book of Galatians. If, you're, uh, this, if this is the first time uh, you're in a service with us, uh, we have been walking through the book of Galatians for much of this year. We took a, a break during uh, an Easter window where we had about uh, two months, we'll say, of uh, of hope is what we focused on uh, during those months, hope. Um, and we're back into Galatians. We're uh, nearing the end, however, I, I will say that. We're in chapter 5, as you see here, verses 16 uh, to 21. And I'm just going to go ahead and say what some of you will be thinking once I reread this scripture passage. And that is, now we've got a lot of energy going, uh, the spirit is flowing, and we're going to talk about sin today. Uh, and so uh, this sermon, uh, it, it could be heavy. Uh, I actually don't intend it to be. Uh, I, I think when we talk about sin, we talk very seriously about a grave matter. Um, but we know from uh, the outset that we have the answers to this deep problem, to this heavy problem. Uh, and so uh, we begin and we end with gospel. This is what Paul teaches us. This is what has been happening uh, in his letter to this point. It is what he will follow up with, but in sandwiched uh, in the middle of it all uh, is this passage that we're reading today. So if you will, uh, turn with me to, uh, to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll read together our passage one more time. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, and to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, this could be a heavy sermon. Um, it is about sin. Uh, in a way, I, I, I want to ask the question, what is sin? What is sin? What, what, is, what does that even mean? Uh, and my guess is you already have like pre-baked answers. And, and my hope today is, is to maybe um, uh, take what you think it is and, and build on that and build outward so that you perhaps, uh, as you walk away from here, have a bit of a clearer view on what it is, and, and maybe some of the things that it's not, actually. Uh, and um, as you do so, 
you may be convicted by today's sermon, but my hope is that we actually leave here feeling victorious, uh, a victory that is clearly not of our own making, uh, but a victory that belongs solely and only to Jesus. Uh, before we jump into the text itself and what uh, I, I want to say about that, I actually want to set it in um, two contexts uh, that I think will help us. Frankly, these two contexts uh, will uh, help just about any discussion you have uh, regarding uh, any theological matter. And the contexts are very simple for you to remember. Uh, one is Christmas and the other is Easter. One is Christmas and the other is Easter. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> when Paul talks about the flesh, which is what he talks about here at length, he says that word any number of times uh, really throughout uh, this entire chapter, the flesh. It's important we, remember, uh, we realize what he is not saying. Um, and so the context of Christmas gives us an idea of what he is not saying. I think there is a theology out there, there's a belief out there among many, uh, that uh, all humanity is nothing but garbage, or uh, sometimes it's called worm theology. We're just, we're just awful and terrible and horrible. And I personally do not subscribe to this. I'll just go ahead and say it. I think when I look around at humanity, I see a mixture of good and evil. I see bad things and I see tremendous things. And so when I hear Paul talking about the flesh, one of the things he is not saying, he is not saying that everything within you is just horrible and terrible and needs to completely go away. We need to put this in the context of Christmas because at Christmas, what happens? Jesus, God, becomes flesh. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Same exact word, right? Flesh. Sarks is the Greek here. The word or Jesus becomes flesh. He takes on our flesh, right? And so if flesh was necessarily evil, awful, and terrible, well then Jesus would not come in the flesh, would he? He would do something different. But instead, what we find is that uh, the incarnation, the, the Christmas context reminds us of the goodness of humanity, of what we were intended to be. I think, by the way, the contexts, and we'll get there in a second, of, of the Garden of Eden and, and of the New Jerusalem to come, they also help us understand what we're talking about here. They give us a frame for understanding humanity as it should be. This is what Jesus comes to do. This is what the incarnation is. This is what Christmas reminds us. What humanity should be, is meant to be. Humanity at its best, at its most joyful. Or, or all those things that we're not going to get to talk about today, but next week we will when we see the fruits of the Spirit, right? The love and the joy and the peace, all that stuff. Humanity as it's meant to be. The second context is Easter. This context is, uh, is actually quite important for understanding what Paul is doing with this word flesh, how sin itself works, and, and where all of this came from and where it's all going to. Um, 
last Easter, not this one, but uh, I guess two Easter's ago now, I spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 15, this is where Paul is talking at length about the resurrection and the resurrection body. And one of the things he says, uh, and, and a point he stresses, is that Jesus' bodily resurrection matters. And our bodies matter. And so yours and, and my resurrection to come, it's in a bodily form. And so there are, again, theologies out there that want to say, oh, someday all of like material matter and the bodies and all that, that's going away, and then we're going to be whisked off into the heavens where we will all be spiritual creatures, right? And that is not actually what we find throughout Scripture. We find that actually we're waiting on a bodily resurrection, and that bodies, similar but not the same as what we inhabit now, is what we can expect. And this is to say that what we experience in this place, here now in this world, is a reflection of things to come. It is broken. It is filled with pain. It, it leads to death at some point. It, it, we, we see it tearing itself apart. But nevertheless, the, the, the material part of it, the bodily part of it, this seems to be baked into what we can expect in the life to come. And so when we think about Easter and the context of Easter, we are reminded again, kind of the same lesson we see in Christmas, which is that flesh and bodies, they're not inherently bad, but they do need redemption. And so there are three uh, truths that the Easter context brings to the fore. The first truth is the hardest here, and it's the hard truth that we're kind of talking about with this passage, which is that death and crucifixion is a necessary component. Crucifixion is necessary both for Jesus, but also for us. Back in Galatians chapter 3, Paul reminds us that we too must be crucified with Christ. And what he means is, is that there are pieces within us that must die. They, they must go away. There are things within us that we need to get rid of. I'm going to guess if you just kind of sat with that, maybe on its surface, you could be offended. But if you sit with it long enough, you think, yeah, that's obvious. There are pieces of me that I've been wrestling with from my childhood that I wish would just go away. There are pieces uh, that I've picked up along the way that I want gone and out of my life completely. And I think the word sin is an appropriate thing to call that. The second truth that Easter reminds us of, however, is that we don't stop there is that victory is possible. Victory over sin and evil, that is the vehicle that Jesus uses to move us to what's coming next, to that third truth. And so Jesus' death, this is the battle that he takes sin on directly. He fights it on our behalf, and he wins and he fights death directly, and God raises him on the third day, and he defeats death. And in that, we have a promise, right? That victory is possible. That this first truth, 
that death is needed, that, that crucifixion is needed, becomes then we are given a vehicle that is Jesus' death and resurrection within which we set ourselves and we are taken on uh, into the third and final truth that becomes really important for the context in which we're talking today. And that is that this life is not all there is. Death and crucifixion is actually not the end. It's simply a passage towards something more. Jesus' victory over sin is actually not the end either. It is the vehicle toward that something more. It is how we get to the greatest truth of all. There is a better way to be human. There is a better way to be human than what you and I are experiencing. Jesus has opened this door for us. Death is a necessary passage, the dark tunnel. It is a leap of faith, but it leads to resurrection. It leads to fullness of life, life as it was meant to be, the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, the fusing of heaven and earth, whatever you want to call it. This is what awaits us. The context then for today's passage is incarnation and resurrection. When we talk about sin, we are talking about a world that is not as it should be. I would encourage you to do a thought experiment about what if the world was as it should be? What would that world even look like? What would a world that is not filled with brokenness, with hurt, or with pain, or with death, what would that world even look like? I think if we can begin to grasp that, then we begin to grasp what we are meant to be like in this world. And if we can begin to grasp that, then we begin to realize that we are made for something more. When we turn to Galatians chapter 5, there are three things that we find that I want to point to you. The one is that uh, desires matter. The two, number two, is that at the heart of all of this, the problem is really pride. And number three, we are in a battle. <clears throat> Let's start with the desires. If we read back in verse 16, if you've got your uh, Bible still open there, what we find is this. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, Paul could have stopped there. And we might say, yeah, desire is a bad thing. The desires of the flesh, right? And you could probably imagine what sorts of desires these might be. He actually names a number of them uh, in what's to come here. Paul does not stop with that as the only desire, however. He keeps going. And in verse 17, he says this, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
I spent way too much time with this line to, this week. I, I became fascinated with it, and um, about 99.9% uh, .9 of all that fascination is not going to make it into the sermon here. Uh, and so instead, I'm going to tell you what I think Paul is saying here, is that there are two desires you can focus on in life. The one is, as he says here, the desire of the flesh, and it's focused uh, inwardly. It's focused on yourself, and it's focused on what you might do. And then the other is the desire of the Spirit, and it's the desires to follow God in life and to be led by the Spirit. And then he says, and this is the line that like, keeps scholars in business because there's lots of different opinions on it. He says, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And here's what I think he means here. One way to translate this or to understand this is that you cannot do whatever you want to do, is how you could translate that. And some translations actually do. To keep you from doing whatever you want to do. Namely, you can do one, and that is you can obey those desires of the flesh, or you can do the other and obey the desires of the spirit. But you can't do whatever you want to do. You can't do both, right? These two things are at odds with one another. And so Paul, I think, is saying, choose ye this day whom you will serve, right? Will you serve the Spirit or will you serve yourself, right? And Paul is calling us away from a life in service to ourselves and to our personal desires or to our fleshly desires, rather. And instead, he is calling us to a desire of sorts. He wants us to lean into passion. He wants us to lean into uh, choosing our longings in a way that is holy. I don't know about you, but when, at least when I was a kid, when I was younger in my uh, youthful years, I had this mistaken notion that all the fun was being had with the sinners. It might have come from a Billy Joel song, <laughs> uh, as it's just hitting me right now, actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, as if, like, uh, living in sin is somehow uh, filled with, uh, well, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and all that stuff. And the truth of the matter is, those of us who have lived long enough, it, there's a fleeting nature to that fun, isn't there? But boy, it's fleeting and then quite hollow in the long term. And instead, what you get is, um, <laughs> is not fun, and it's certainly not joy. It's that candy rush uh, of, of doing something exciting, only to then be let down. Following the pursuit uh, of the holy longings that we are called to, that may not at the outset be the funnest thing you can think of in this life, but I assure you this, it is filled with love and joy and peace and patience. It is a path that is sustainable. It is a, a, a path that leads you to a place that I assure you has meaning, that this is where we desire to ultimately be. If we follow these holy longings that are meant to be given to us from within, 
and we eschew the longings or the, uh, the desires of the flesh, and what we find is a, is a life well lived. Um, a number of weeks ago now, uh, we were talking about the connection between love and hope, and um, I, I, I tried to connect you to a, a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, uh, who says that uh, the purity of heart is to will one thing. If you don't remember that, that's okay, I'm telling you again. Purity of heart is to will one thing, to desire one thing, right? And that one thing we are called to desire in this life is the pursuit of God. And if we can desire that one thing, then as Jesus teaches us, all other things get added to that. Number two here on my list of things to point out is actually connected to one. It's kind of like 1A, and it has to do with pride. Pride. I remember reading the very first time I ever read C.S. Lewis's um, Mere Christianity. Uh, He has a chapter entitled Pride. And in it, he calls it um, the, I think he calls it the great sin or the chief sin. I think he calls it the great sin. Because I remember thinking, how can a sin be great? (laughs) Uh, By which he means that is the root uh, of all sin. And Lewis is just actually simply stealing from uh, the church tradition here that stems way back uh, to the monastic fathers and mothers uh, who teach us quite a lot about our psychology. If you want to know the roots uh, of psychology, you should probably go back to those monastic uh, fathers and mothers uh, who look introspectively at what's going on in their own hearts. And one of the things they say, and, and then Lewis picks up on, is at the center of our sin nature, what makes us sin is pride. And pride is a turning toward the self. It is a a looking first and foremost at my own concerns, at what makes me uh, worry about my own self. And and there's, yes, a selfishness to it, but sometimes it it simply exhibits itself as, as fear. Sometimes it's simply insecurity. It exhibits itself in any number of ways and in any number of sins. And often when we sin, it stems from what? It stems from a pursuit of what Paul here calls the flesh, which is to say an inward focus, instead of turning outward and focusing on being led by the Spirit. I'm waking up in the morning and saying to yourself, God, what do you have for me today? Where would you have me go today? Pride uh, also uh, strikes at the heart of the two great commandments, right? To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two hardest things to do because it's easy to focus in on what's going on in here, but to love in, by the way, a, love, uh, a self-giving kind of way, which is what love is, that requires a turning outward, a recognizing the needs uh, of others, 
of our neighbors and of what it is that God has for us. And so as we turn to these lists of sins, what you find through them is that it is often loving God wrongly or loving our neighbors poorly or frankly not at all is what we find in these sins. And it's not even sometimes, sometimes it's not even loving ourselves very well at all. The third thing to say is, uh, could be hidden here, but um, it's that what we see in this passage is that we are in a battle, a battle for our very souls. In many ways, it's a losing battle. It certainly was, uh, as Paul is writing here, leading up to Jesus, where uh, the law is given, and we know from the law all of the things we've done wrong, and this is what the law can do, uh, and so it tells us that we are losing the battle to our own flesh, but what the law cannot give us is victory. It can't teach us how to get ourselves out of our own mess. You see this more clearly in Romans chapter 7 than you do here, um, but here in verse 17, Galatians 5, 17, we see that the, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, is the way Paul puts it there. But if you turn back with me to to Romans 7. I'll just read it for you. Starting in verse 21, we read this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war. And there's this war, this battle imagery, right? I see another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive. This war has taken us captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And here Paul is teeing up the question for us, right? Who is going to deliver me in this war in which I've been taken captive by my own flesh? Who is going to deliver me from this body of death, is what he says. And the answer he gives is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oswald Chambers writes, he says, The battle is won in the secret places of the will before God. Never first in the external world. Nothing has power over the person who has fought out the battle before God and won there. Here's what Oswald Chambers is saying. He's saying what Jesus taught us, which is if we are fighting the battle against our own sin and flesh, the list that Paul lists out, by the way, is not intended, I should have left my Bible open for you, uh, is not intended to be a new law. This is actually really important. He's not like doing away with the law only to then set up, here's the new one for you or something like that, which is why he begins this way. The works of the flesh are self-evident. They are just manifest. Like we all know them to be true is what he's saying, right? And then he concludes this way. He says, uh, uh, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, right? which is saying, etc., etc. right? So he's not setting up a new law. Instead, what is he doing? He's pointing at the heart of what's happening. 
And when Oswald Chambers says that the battle is won in the secret places of the will before God, he is saying that if you're trying to defeat these sins in your life, whether it's envy, maybe it's drunkenness, maybe it's anger, maybe it's rivalries, maybe it's sexual immorality, if you are trying to defeat these in your own life, this is not going to happen in the moment the battle arises is what Oswald Chambers is saying. This is going to happen in the secret places where the will and our desires, they're sitting before God. And you are asking yourself in that moment, do I desire the flesh or do I desire what the spirit desires? Am I going to follow and be led by the spirit or Am I going to be led about by my own flesh? This is what Oswald Chambers is calling us to, a life of, frankly, some contemplation. In fact, if I could give you one assignment this week, it'd be this, to, to take this list and just sit it before you. I think some of us know the hot sins, as they can be called, right? And Paul starts with them, the sexual immorality and the impurity and the sensuality, hot ones, but sometimes we don't uh, take into account some of these others, do we? I mean, maybe idolatry and sorcery, that gets interesting there, which by the way is a, is a turn on misunderstanding how, how we are meant to worship God, and instead we turn our attentions toward things that are not God. But what about enmity? What about being a person of strife? What about jealousy? What about fits of anger or rivalries or dissension or division, envy, etc.? Sit with these a little bit. If I could bring us back to the context of incarnation and resurrection, <clears throat> here's what I'd say. What Paul is pointing us to here is a life that is not well-lived, right? A life that is not meant to be. And as we envision and we spend time thinking about what is the next life going to be like? What is the good life like? What are we meant to be as humans? How are we meant to live? Paul is saying to us that this is a warped view of humanity. This is not humanity as it should be. This is often humanity as it is. And thanks be to God that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fought the battle for us, has won it, and now calls us into a life of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Holy Spirit who dwells in this place right now, we come to you and Lord, we seek you in this moment. God, reveal to us the ways in which we are not living into our full God-given humanity, but are instead living out warped versions of what you would have us be. God, teach us what it means to be fully human to be led by the Spirit, to live lives of holy longings, 
God, that is a life that is filled with all good things. God, teach us to walk that path. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.